Podcasting with Kerry Jones. Hi guys, and welcome to this week's podcast. And what a special one it is for me. Episode 100. And just over two years has passed since I've done the first episode. And some of you have followed me from the very first one. And I really appreciate it. And for those of you who have only just come across the podcast, it all started at the start of lockdown, at the bottom of the garden in my shed. We all had plenty of time to think of what we're going to do because of uh, the restrictions and that, and we were limited on travel, and just one of those things, and I thought to myself, I've got to start doing something different. Not only was my photography hit with uh, the restrictions, and no one could come to my home and um, for any studio shoots, so every day I'd go down the shed and have a think, get some sort of routine going, because I think it was for the first three weeks or so. You weren't allowed to leave the house. And during this time, I thought to myself, I've been 26 years, 26 plus years working for Anglian magazines, notably trout fishermen mostly. I could see things had changed and all the experience I had, all the contacts I made. It'd been sad to just leave it all go, thinking it's just one of those things which you've done and move on. So I got my thinking cap on and thought of doing more or less the same thing, but in a different medium. So instead of the written word, to start a podcast. And little did I know at the time, but I heard everyone talking about podcasts. Since then, they have boomed, and there's podcasts everywhere now. There's one person i got to really thank for it all. It's a good friend of mine, Carol. She initially put the idea into my head. So, like everything I do, if I'm doing something, I want to do it right. So I invested good bit of money actually on the recording equipment and how to learn to record and the background with podcasts so it took me about three months to get it all together before it went live in July 2000 so it owe a lot to Carol some of you haven't met but all of you would have heard because even though I'm the voice behind the podcast there's one voice at the start which I've been asked many times who's this sexy voice and it's Carol. And it stuck from the start. She didn't want to do it. But with a bit of persuasion. And I'm glad she did. And without her encouragement. And social media skills and background. This wouldn't have come about. But what this podcast has given me as well. It's given me the opportunity. To get back in touch. With some of the people and contacts I've met from over the years. In the fishing world. It was great to catch up with them and chat and get them as guests onto this podcast. Even though most of the people on the 99 episodes which I've spoke to, most of them I have known. But there are a few which, until this come about, I didn't know. And now they've become good friends. I hope to get them on many more times to chat with. And when is when I started the podcast? One thing I've tried to do, I obviously live in Wales. I fish a lot of the waters in Wales and England. A lot of the friends and guests I've chatted over the period have been from here and fished these waters like me. But as most of you know, 
My passion is Ireland, the west of Ireland, especially on the Corrib, because they've got lots of friends and contacts out there. I try to keep a balance. Each month, I try to get as much Irish content as I can as well, which I thoroughly enjoy. So on to this week's episode. I wanted to put something special together, and I think the only way to do it is to have a selection, a snippet, a collection of some of my past episodes. It was quite difficult to choose which ones, to be honest with you, because with 99 episodes, and probably well in excess of over 100 hours, but I put together a few moments from the recordings, which has definitely put a smile on my face, and I had a lot of messages and emails and, and feedback over some of them which I know have been really popular. So sit back and enjoy. Episode 7, Fish Artist David Miller. I see a snorkel coming up into the pool. <laughs> I do, I do for obvious reasons, avoid going at night, De- definitely. I, I, I have upset over the years, and literally just one or two fishermen when they've turned up the fisher pool and they've seen me sort of... Um, coming up. <laughs> yeah, yeah in, one, in one pool on, on the coffee. What I what I do to relax um, after a dive sometimes, like you're chasing, um, you know, shadows really. The fish are here and then they're gone, and it's hard work. You're swimming up river, so we've have had a session photographing, and also just because it's what I, what I love to do. Late in the season, one year on the coffee, it was a deep pool about ten feet deep, and I had a good dive, seen some fish. So I lay on my bike on the bottom of the pool. You can just lie as, as a with your scuba gear on, watch the surface and watch the leaves coming down. Wow. And it, it is it is like wow, this is amazing. So but some guy, I couldn't see him, had arrived to fish the pool. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he sees me and he thinks I'm stuck. And he said, because I don't know how many minutes I was, I was lying there, not not moving. And the coffee, especially when I dive, I choose it when it's really clear. And so he could see virtually every every detail on me. Lie, lying on the bike non <laughs> and when when i you know finally decided he said i was just about to uh, phone the emergency services <laughs> 39 marco orsi started fishing the, a, a, a pool that's called kevin's cry spinning with a black and gold flying sea you know and uh, the water was colored perfect conditions uh, i caught a six pound grills quickly returned, you know. I thought, oh, that's a good start to the day. And a couple of casts later, I hooked the fish, and I thought, oh, this this is substantial, you know. Like, <laughs> it's like irres- irresistible force, you know. And I thought, yeah. fish took a huge run through the pool I was fishing, up onto the next pool. Up river. Up, up river, up river. And he hit the lip of the pool, the pool above us, and I just caught the top of his back, and I thought, oh, gosh. Chunky, we need the net because we didn't have a net. So Chunky's called Chunky because he's Chunky. He's about <laughs> big lad, like. he's a big lad, you know. And the the hut was about four hundred <laughs> yards away. <laughs> so he ran up, and God bless him, he came back with a net. But this time the fish had come back, and he was in the pool. I'd hooked him, you know, and he was rolling, and I could see the the hook was just on the outside of the mouth of the. And he had a huge kite, this fish. Yeah. It was an autumn fish, you know. It wasn't 
you've seen the pictures. It, if you look at it, people think it's a, a, a brown trout, you know. Yeah, but it, colour, it's, it's, it, it's an autumn coloured fish, and um, you know, about twenty, say half hour, I was playing this fish, and strong current as well. And he just managed to come into a backwater, and he see the full length of the fish and chunky netted him for me and I thought you know just like legs which you know because you've caught a big oh, fish yeah. on your own haven't you and you, you know all about this and you just get this feeling like oh my gosh this is something special you know so yeah. we had the scales and we weighed it and we said you know let's weigh it again you know this, this is a 30 pound 35 pound plus fish what's classed as a portmanteau fish I don't know if you've ever heard of that term the old, the old way fishermen used to class anything above thirty pound as a portmanteau, and anything below that was like ladies' handbags. You know. Forty-eight, the story of my Loch Corrib Ferox record. And all of this time, your stomach is in knots with the excitement and the adrenaline because you really don't want this fish to come off. And I did, as I said. Previously, I hooked a fish the year two years before, and it, it was a big, it was a record-sized fish that he came off. I had thought to myself, I don't want to go through that again. The first fish was going to come off. I was going to just step over the side. So anyway, I played this fish, and it looked like now it was just over the hour. She was ready for the net. So again, if you can imagine now, you're in the boat. The fish is behind you, you're facing the wind, and you're drifting away from the fish, which is quite difficult. But And then you're down in a trough and up. So I had my big net out, had it over the side, and she came to the surface on her side, and she was just come into the net. And as I, she came into the net, the trough, the way the wind was, blew the boat up into the, like the crest of the wave. And the fish slipped out and back in. You can imagine what I felt. The fish was half in the net and she just slid back in. And at this point I'm thinking, oh, I was so lucky because I could see the bait and the hooks was inside the mouth. If it had been outside on the jaws, as she slid out at the edge of the net, a good chance the hooks would have been stuck in the net and then inevitable would happen. She would have come off. Another 10 minutes passed now. And if you can imagine, I know the size of the fish now. I've seen the size of the fish. And I still haven't got it in. So, like I said, about another 10 minutes passed now. And she came up to the surface again. And slipped my net under this time, clean as a whistle, lifted the net. And that was it. I didn't just lift her in straight away. I was so shattered, mentally as well as physically. Hour and a quarter that fish would be on. So I held the net at the end of the gunnels for like two minutes. It seemed like a lifetime. Just looked over the side, see the fish there. Lifted then. One heave into the boat. And I could see then that this was a record. Episode 81, Peter Boyle. Just smart, and as I was pulling in the octopus, the kind of octopus would store them and get them kind of going, and then they'd come after the octopus and turn around and take the Cape McLaren behind it, you know. So, um, geez, that was grand that whoever's headed out. And I says to the guy with me, I says, Listen, I know there's a few fish and I've met them 
I was on the Kelly Green, the ice and was pulling wets over them and was getting them all right. So I went out and next thing I hooked into this fish and he was a block of a threat, honest to God. And I says, pass me down the net. And your man turns around and he says, he says, where is the net? He says, you're joking. I says, where is the net? You? I says, is it not in the boat? It was in the boat. I says, it was there when you got in. Ah, oh, damn it. He says, I lifted it out. He says, I put it on the boat beside you, he says, when it's lifting in me gear. Oh, no. I says, well, what the hell are we going to do now? And uh, he says, right. He says, he got down on his hands and knees in the floor of the boat and I was playing the fish and I seen him lifting the baler. And I said, where are you going? Where are you going with the baler? He says, I'm going to put the fish in there. <laughs> I says, Jesus, have you not seen the size of the fish? And he says, all right. He says, I think we need a bigger baler. <laughs> <laughs> Just listen, uh, see what they can do there. So, Jesus, we got the fish and the fish come alongside. And your man, to be fair to him, I ended up with four fish, and the four fish combined weighed 19 pounds. And wow. he netted every single one with his hands on his hands and knees on the boat, on the boat, lifting them in over the side. Oh, oh, I've good. never seen, never seen anything like it. It was mental, Jesus. It was, and you know, God loved him. It, it was just, it was just the luck that was in it. But listen, many a man wouldn't have done it, you know. Yeah. And us sitting, us sitting right around and in the boat, you know. Episode two, Alan Rees. Will Shaw, which used to be the editor of Trout and Salmon. Right, yeah. He was telling me this one story, and uh, he was fishing the Rydal. Right. And uh, something happened, and he, he got spooked. He thought, I'm not staying here, you know. I'm going to go. Yeah. So he got out of the river, and he ran across the field to his car. He couldn't <laughs> wait to run it, right? <laughs> And as he ran across the field, he hit a cow sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> and he, you can imagine it. You'd run across the field, you hit the cow. Ooh, jumped more. I don't know, the cow or him. Yeah. And this cow got up, a big warm thing you imagine you're falling on. He said it was terrifying. <laughs> and I can imagine. It, 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 but, you know, the, the whole night experience, the, I suppose the stories you can draw into it, it's it's a whole romance. It's a different thing altogether. Yeah, just well, being there, listening to the owls as well, and things yeah. creeping and around. And yeah, well, some of the stuff you talking about owls. You know, I used to fish uh, a small stretch of river, and there there was a nice meadow next to it. And every evening, I used to see two barn owls working that field, that meadow. And you know, when when they're in flight, they're absolutely silent, and they they. They're only small birds, but they, they're really good. But, you know, you were talking about cows. I'd staked out this pool on the River Tyvee, okay? It was uh, above Clandisill there, and uh, and I knew they were fishing there because I'd been down and I'd looked, you know. I'd climbed a tree and seen these fish going around. And I, I sat there, oh, maybe two hours before dusk, and I thought, right, I, I'm going to be first on this pool. And as darkness started to come in, there was like sort of a, a a high bank opposite and I was sat there waiting and I heard some branches starting to crackle and I was like, someone's going to come down the bank there and, and jump in the pool ahead of me. I, I'm not going to have that. And I waited and I waited and these crackles and branches started getting a bit more and more. And more. All of a sudden there was a, a massive crack and I, it, I found out later it was a, pen, a fence post had broken there happened to be a cow scratching its back <laughs> against the fence. But when the fence pre- when the fence post broke, the cow came tumbling down through the trees. <laughs> right, yeah, down through the trees, off the bank, into the pool. And this cow was swimming in this pool going, moo, moo. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> I wasn't happy, I tell you. 46, Paul Slaney. Saying about all these like the hippos, the crocs, you want a close escape falling off a boat in, in yeah, you, yeah. You want to ask my wife now when we finish this? <laughs> yeah, we we went. Uh, I went on a bone fishing trip, and my wife came with me. One and only time she ever come fishing with me. And um, anyway, we done some bone fishing. It was the end of the day, and we were just messing about. So we thought we'd we'd try some sharks, you know, shark fishing. So we caught a barracuda, uh, and cut it up to chum the sharks in, That's which we did. Um, so now we're on a 19-foot skiff. There's me, my wife, and uh, the guide, uh, Colin. A uh, little guy. He's only about, you know, he was less than five foot tall. Stocky, powerful boy, but, you know, he wasn't the biggest lad you've ever met. So by now, the the, the boat is surrounded by sharks, so they're like white tips. Not huge, but big enough, you know. Um, and the, and the, 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 the way of fishing for him was to tenor hook on a heavy spinning rod with a chunk of barracuda on it. Literally take the bail arm off, choose which shark you wanted to catch, really, and throw, you know, the lump of bait at it like a cricket ball, and then put the bail arm on and hope he took it. Which oh, you literally throw one cast. Throw literally, literally, you couldn't because it's such a big lump of stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, just throw it at it. Anyway, so I did this. This this shark just turned and took it, <laughs> tightened onto it, and you know, got got this shark on the end, and the rods bending, and I was stood on the casting deck of a bonefish skiff. And I took one step backwards to, to tighten into the fish, and there was no deck left. I just went straight in the water. Jeez, that would have been a great video clip. Oh it? Christ, man! I, and I can remember going. <laughs> I can remember going in, and bear in mind, this boat, this little boat, is literally surrounded by him, and it was shallow. I, I felt my feet hit the, you know, the, the 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 bottom. So it was, it was maybe a little bit deeper than me. I remember thinking, this is it, and uh, I pushed back up. And as I pushed back up, my head came out the water. Colin was there. Grabbed me by the shoulders and literally manhandled me back on the boat. I swear, I swear, my fags were still dry. I was in and out so fast. <laughs> you know, and my wife was like, ah. you know, it was one of them. Time to go home, sort of thing. Episode six, Kerry Thomas. Discovered uh, there was there was a lake up near Tyvee Pools called Thlin Gernon. I knew it. You can fish as part of the Ryder Angling Club, and um, what we used to do is um, we used to love it because. Um, you would always be guaranteed to catch a lot of fish there. It was, it was a good head of fish, and, and yeah. the average size was like, um, you know, three quarters of a pound to a pound, you know. So we um, went up there. We fished the Tyvee pools, right, one one evening. And uh, we thought, oh, should we walk over to the Gunnon? Nice night for it, you know, middle of summer. Yeah, let's do it. Let's go there for the evening rise, isn't it? So it was about a two-mile walk there. So we got there. And it was great. He fished his head off, and we were completely engrossed with the fishing. And it was like about nine o'clock now, yeah. middle of uh, middle of July. You know, great. Let's go back. And and we looked around, and this thick mist, right, fog, was rolling in off the moor behind us, right. And this stuff now, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. <laughs> what the hell do we do now? So uh, we know the direction. We'll, we'll try and head back to the car. We sort of tried to cut ac- across the moor, and it, it's kind of, um, it's very boggy up there. And I know, of, it's um, great to open, isn't tussock it? Tussock grass and all this stuff, and, and we thought we were going in the right direction. So we were just walking and walking. It seemed like hours. And it was now about midnight, and, and bloody, st- you know, couldn't see a thing. If we, you know, see the stars, you could have made out um, 
or the moonlight, uh, some of the mountains, you know. Good romantic, yeah, them, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, what do we do? Well, we sort of had to find a rock. It was a great big rock, like a little cave underneath this. So, so we had to wedge ourselves under that. And it was drizzle as well. Now, so we were soaking wet. And I believe there was a sheep or two in there as well. Keep us company. So you were a cut with the sheep as well. Cut with the sheep, yeah, and under <laughs> a rock, yeah. So we spent the night up there. Did you spend the night spent up the there? Spent the night, yeah. We were stuck, and um, so it was about seven a.m. Now it was a bit of light now, and it was still just as bad. Were you expected oh. back somewhere a certain time? We probably were, but we never really used to tell our parents. We'd say, "Oh yeah, we're going fishing," and we disappeared yeah. for a few days. Like it was, it was a bit different yeah. back then, wasn't it? But, um, yeah, so it was nearly as bad, and we were still lost. And uh, there was no sign of this stuff clearing. So I, I walked away from the cave. I was desperate for a pee, right? And uh, I came across a tarmacked road. And I was like, what the hell? You I was like, ah, ah, there's a road here. And we walked over, and, and it turns out this was the road by the side of Thlin Agnant. And we were about 200 yards from our car. No. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ! So we, so we, you know, we nearly got there. Yeah, but uh, well, at least you got yeah. the sheep experience as well. The sheep experience as well. Yeah, in Wales, like, two hundred uh, yards. Yeah, in the car. Yeah. Eighteen, Colin Fallen. I'm not going to talk about uh, famous people because uh, it, it, it's just it's that they're no different than than you or I. But uh, you'd get a lot of politicians, actors, musicians, the yeah, whole, yeah. the whole, uh, some of them, uh, that none of them really leave an impression on me anyway, to be honest with you. But, uh, I tell you, I tell you one about, uh, no, I don't know. I suppose he's famous, uh, but I, I, I called him a second Egypt anyway. And, and, uh, here's what happened was I was, uh, I was Gillian on Banner Hinch for the first week in July, uh, for a fella called Don Carroll. He was Carroll's cigarette. I was Don's Gilly and, Always the first seven days in July was, was, you know, year on, year off. That was always with Don. And sometimes he'd have a guest with him for the week. And this time he had a guest, fellow from Belgium, an lad from Belgium. So anyway, well, three days into the fishing, we were fishing uh, beat one in Balnehinch, and we were fishing on the far bank. And on the near bank, there's all rushes and reeds. And he hooked a, a fish about five or six pounds. And the fish kept you know, trying to run into the, the the rushes on him, you know. And I kept saying to my sister, I said, don't, don't let him in there. I said, don't let pull him out, but pull him out. And he wasn't stopping the fish at all. And, uh... Was it a trash? The fish went... No, it was a, a grilled salmon. Yeah. The, the fish went straight into the reeds anyway. I said, you fucking idiot. I said, I told you not to let him into the, <laughs> the reeds. And sure, the, the fly, the, we lost the fly as well, which kind of really annoyed me because I only had the one of it and it was working very well that week. So I had to break, I had to snap the line anyway and got it back. So I finished up with him on the, the Friday and I knew they were going to the dinner in Roundstone, into O'Dowd's restaurant in, in Roundstone. You were actually in there with me one yeah, time. Yeah, I remember, yeah. Chowder. You had a liquid so lunch anyway, as well, I think. Liquid lunch. Do you see how I start? We had chowder and... Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> So what happened was uh, I, I drove back to Galway after doing seven days' work with them and I was emptying out my car and lo and behold, Yamano's fishing bag was in the, in the boot of my car, the Belgian fella. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
like you want to see all the, the hardy reels he had and boxes of fully dressed salmon flies and this that and the other like this was this was 50 grand worth of stuff now in his in his uh, bag like big bag so i said to myself i can't be responsible for uh shipping this back to belgium like i i, I hardly even knew his name and stuff so you'd forgot I it jump back in the forgot it yeah it was in my car i jumped back in the car anyway and i drove back out to uh roundstone which is about an hour and a half from from galway and i went into the restaurant and I brought in the bag and there he was with Don and there was two other fellas, two kind of big heavies. And I, I said to myself, right, this makes sense now because I'd seen them two big fellas, you know, daily for the last week and stuff like that. You know what I mean? They were his bodyguards, right? right. So Don says, says to me, uh, you'll stay for dinner and you can stay in my house. That's brilliant uh, gesture what you're after doing there. And I said, well, thank you very much. I, I'd enjoy that. And he says, no, he says, Colin, I, I'll formally introduce you to the King of Belgium. Says, right, Albert, the King of Belgium. And I went, oh, hello. Uh, uh, how do I how do I refer to you, I says to him, you know. And he says, well, most people will call me uh, Your Majesty. He says, but I loved it when you called me a second Egypt. So I'm, not, I'm not used to being called a second Egypt, he says. Right, so I says, I just called the King of Belgium a second Egypt. So... Fifty-one, Isted Griffiths. Will, if they if they're eating sprats, say, they will corral the sprats. The whole pile of these sea trout will corral the sprats, and they will dive in there, stun them very much like fry feeders, trout fry feeders, and then they'll come round and they'll eat them, and they'll. They become sated, you know, they, they can't eat any more. Their stomachs are absolutely full. And then they will literally sit on the bottom, you know, again, we don't say the bottom, but you know what I mean? Yeah. They, go, they go down in the water and they do no activity. And it doesn't matter whether it's a 10-pound fish or a 3-pound fish, their stomach juices, their digestive juices will work pretty well at the same rate. So when they're hungry or they need feeding again, they're going to all need feeding the same time. Yep. And then, then they go through this exercise again of corralling the fish, stunning them, eating as much as they can, which is why we have this phenomenal growth rate in some of these fish, right? You know, I mean, why do you get uh, 16, 18, 20-pound sea trout? You know, it's... it's uh, they, I mean, they're big fish. They, they're not going to grow to that sort of size any more than the, the big trout in the collie will grow to that size if they're going to eat flies or eat small things. They've got to eat something substantial mm. to maintain or to gain that weight and maintain it. So is it a matter, therefore, that when these fish are sitting in pools, that suddenly that urge to do something comes to them all at the same time? comes to them all. So if one takes, another one's going to take, another yeah. one's going to take, right? That, uh, yeah. For a short period of time, a short period of activity. Yeah. And I've seen me catch three fish in half an hour on a night when I caught nothing else and I've been out all night. It all happened maybe between one and half past one or two and half past two 
whatever, right? Yeah. Suddenly, boom, boom, boom. And then nothing again. So, fishing pools is a, pa- a game of patience. Episode 56, Simon Kidd of Snowby. You're going to rivers then, did you? I did, yeah. Um, I learned to cast properly, and I didn't not properly, but I learned to fish with a, my dad's old all-cock rod, um, uh, an old reel, and uh, a silk line, which I used to cast for hours outside the in the garden sort of thing, or on the field outside the, the farmhouse, um, struggling to cast. And the harder I tried, the worse I got. Um, but I was I was very keen to... You to still l- got it? I have, yeah. Yeah, I would never keep get something like that. Yeah, yeah, I would never yeah. get rid of that. Yeah, I've still got the line as well. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, I learnt on that. And a Millwood reel, it was called. A Millwood. Um, an old reel. But, um, yeah, and there wasn't much still water fishing to be had. But there were some rivers. I learned on the River Teen at Fingalbridge. Small trout, lots of trout, and quickly learned to catch them. I used to go rock hopping. I didn't have any waders, so I'd rock, hop between the rocks. Catch the fish, and I loved it. It was all dry fly. Um, my headmaster at my primary school in Cheriton Bishop, he was a mad king fisherman. He used to make his own rods and stuff like that as well. And uh, he gave me a couple of flies, and he showed me how to tie them along with my dad. And um, uh, Jack Hargreaves, do you remember him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, out of town, out I think of town. Yeah. I, I met him once. and Did you? With his son, with my dad. And my dad knew him, and because uh, he was from Dorset or Hampshire area somewhere, and my dad knew him and uh, introduced me to him and... I met his son, and his son showed me how to tie my first fly. Wow. So I learned how to fly tie from then on. So, because I, I got into it. You can time. watch it on YouTube now. You can see. Can you? Yeah, I watched them on YouTube because I remember back then when he was on the TV, and uh, it was the f- second half I was always interested in, because the first half was something else to do with the country, yeah. maybe shooting or whatever. Yeah. The second half was always fishing, and I just couldn't wait to the second. <laughs> the half. second yeah. half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I watched him the other day now, and he's there with his pipe. Yeah. You know, he's a character. Like, isn't he? Episode 10, Charles Jardine. Places I really would love to go back to. I'd like to be sandwiched between the Madison Valley and, and um, Box Canyon, because then I could spend an afternoon or a morning on the Madison and then finish it off on Henry's Fort. Right. And that's really where I'd love to be, because... Of no place I've ever fished has anything like Henry's Fort when it's in in her majestic best, being able to fill the senses like that river. I mean, it, it is just the most beautiful place to be. A sort of whispering dry grass of late autumn. You've got sandhill cranes going back south down to Mexico to overwinter. You've got the first first vestiges of snow across the Tetons in the background and you know what, and you've got trout sipping tiny western blue olives or sulphurs oh man it's like sometimes Kerry, it's like fishing for ghosts 45 James Barry one good fish uh, in the morning, we got up at you know, silly o'clock, 4am I think and yeah. we headed out um, there's actually a funny story behind it the engine wouldn't start on the boat so uh, oh. you obviously get get down to your boat you're ready to go you're looking out on the lake and uh, we go to pull the engine no, no go out of the engine so we um, I was just annoyed over the top of the boat and my friend that was with me Jason said oh look I'll just row us over to this bay 
and um, we'll, we'll give it a go. And at this stage, I was sitting up top. I was just annoyed. The engine not working. Yeah. <laughs> um, ready to go back to the B&B and just say, that's it, enough of this. But uh, Jason, thankfully, anyway, rode us over to the little bay. And as we're approaching, we're probably 100 yards out. We could just see, well, I could see I was sitting up the top. I could see this fish just sitting behind an island. And I shout back to Jason, I said, yeah, I think, I think I see something here. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, we kind of rode up onto this island really nice and stealthy, actually. Now that I look back at it, it probably, probably helped us a bit with the engine didn't start. Yeah. And um, it's just sipping away, sipping away. And uh, I just set up a fly, uh, waited for the fish to come up. Uh, textbook stuff, you know, just drop the fly beside where he came up. And sure enough, he just came up and had it. And uh, yeah, then all hell broke loose. It was just uh, almighty battle. And he was just oh, such a such a pretty fish. Um, oh. And yeah, definitely, definitely one I won't forget in a while. Just uh, great, great buzz. Just uh, food for the fly fishing soul up there in Mayfly time. It's great, great fun. Yeah. Well, it must have been yeah. um, a blessing, really, that the engine didn't work. That's it, you know. Uh, everything, you know, all these things happen for a reason, as they say. Yeah. Did you get yeah, into work so after? We were, yeah, I, I kind of, I was messaging so I, Jason saying that all I need is a bit of sunshine on the engine there, it will heat it up a bit. Uh, and uh, sure enough, when the sun came up and hit it, it was uh, it was fine. One turn of the engine that started, and we we headed off then. But we actually didn't catch that for the rest of the morning. Episode forty, fly fishing and fly tying magazine editor Mark Bowler. So he went up there, and I said, "Get," I said to Glenn, "If you get some shots of David there, you'll get the mountain in the background and David fishing." And as he was doing it, I noticed some little fish dimpling in this look in this bay which where Glynn was. So I said to Glynn, I said, that, look, there's some, there's some little fish dimpling here, Glenn. I'll flip out, and if you set your camera up, I reckon I'll be able to cast towards the camera, and hopefully I'll get one, and then there'll be a splash in front of the camera, and I'll be in the background. With the motor. Yeah. So I said, <laughs> so... I flipped out, and he set his camera up on the tripod, and I said, I cast out towards him, and he said, are you ready? I said, yeah. He said, are you ready? Yeah. I started retrieving. And I just made about two or three retrieves, and this almighty gleam just rolled over the wet flights, you know? Wow. And I thought, what on earth is that? And I lifted into it, and uh, I remember David said, he said, have you got one, Bowler? I said, yeah, yeah, I have. And he said, make it jump for the camera. And I said, David, I said, you haven't seen this fish. I said, it is so big, it won't get off the ground. Really? It, and it was, i tell you, it was, there's a fish farm on the, on the loch, and it grew rainbows, and sometimes it escaped. Oh. But this, this one must have escaped a long time ago, because we eventually got it in. It was 19 pounds, one hour. You're kidding. And it was a massive rainbow. Mass, absolutely massive rainbow. And it was so funny. I, I thought, this this will get off in a minute. You know, it's got to. Um, but it didn't. In and f- I caught it on a on a size 12 in, uh, Pearly and Victor, I caught it on. 58, Emily Lewis. Uh, by doing fishing was just with one fly. A one small little black head. Lead head. And the secret was to change them. I'd fish with that for 
uh, half an hour catch, two or three, and then change it to white. And then fish with that for a couple of fish, and then change it to orange, and then come back to black. And that's the way I, had, I did it on the first day, because at nearly 12 o'clock, I didn't have a fish on the first day, and I think it was fishing, finishing at 4 o'clock or half past 4. But by half past 4, I had 21 fish. And I'd done it on that process of changing, uh, listening Let to him and listening used to, to the yeah. fly. And I remember coming the, the, the second day, Jeremy was about, I think he was, he had about 14 on the first day, and he was a good angler. And I remember him, knew, he knew where I was going to fish again the next day. Uh, and he came opposite me on the other side of the arm to fish with me. And I could see him fishing, and I don't think that was good news because I could see him catching fish, and he had the uh, shooting head he had. Yeah. And he used to go miles out with the shooting head. I can see him now fishing, and he was casting towards me, and suddenly I looked up in the air, and I could see this shooting head, this line coming through the air towards me. <laughs> and what had happened, it had broken loose from, from, the, the, shoot, from the backing, and the shooting led him, and I was very happy in my mind, mind <laughs> you. He slowed him down a bit. Because he'd caught quite a number of fish. Well, I hadn't had only one, I think. So I said, well, the best thing for you to do, Lewis, I said, was to move. Don't look at it, Jeremy. Let him tie another shooting head and go somewhere else. And that's what I did. I went to somewhere else, and I was fortunate enough to catch another nine or ten fish. Is and that it? was enough to, for me to carry the day. Like. 59, Russell Lowen. All the soup and something in the lodge. Yeah, it's quite posh, isn't it? It's yeah, good, yeah. You know, and then yeah. We come off the boat with our packed lunches and stuff. Didn't yeah, that's we? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did when we went uh, into we just sat down in the corner, and then I started eating my food. And I could see the chef across the far side of the room. If it looks good, kill. He's staring at me, <laughs> and I couldn't figure it out. I, yeah, I'd forgotten about. That. I think I did the bowl of soup, and you, you said, oh, "I'm okay. I've got some sandwiches." But they, they didn't like that much, did they? Strange. I don't know really why that is. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that you had, you had a bowl of soup after as well, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I felt guilty then. Yeah. yeah. I laughed then because when we went back and he said... Uh, Phil was... Uh, Phil was, Wood was, was there after. The and then, he said he? You, and uh, he actually came up to me and he said that um, the chef wasn't too happy. <laughs> what made me laugh then? He said, you're lucky you didn't have a kebab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After practice, we sort of established that there was a lot of fish in that damn basin area. But it was very windy. Now, the people have been catching and pulling on previous, previous days and you know, practice days. But on come match day, it, it really did blow up and took, you know, to an extent where the, it bore the line whether we should have even been on the water. The safety boat was sat on the down wall making sure everyone was, was okay all day. But we found that floaters were the best because uh, we had a couple of fabs and a couple of nymphs. But the... The floater we thought was the best because the surface tension tends to move faster than the boat in a big swell because you've got the drogue out, whereas the, the surface water is moving fast. Yeah. And a floating line sits in the surface tension, so it was staying tight, so you could fish almost static or very slow, nice. and your floater stays tight the whole time. Yeah. Your flies might sink a little bit, but you're not constantly cat trying to catch your flies up where you would be. Because the, the sink slowly down so much. Yeah, with a, with, a, with a tip line or a sinking line, you're going to have to be retrieving your flies quite fast just to stay in contact. But a floater, you just let the, the surface tension do the work, so you've almost got a, a tight line. I know your flies are sinking a little bit, so you get a little bit of a hinge. 
Will there be fists outside the cages? No, you'll see them. I'd see a smile on your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is, yeah. Um, we've got pets by the jetty, but these are a different calibre down here. Yeah, there's, there's, there's fish that hang about under the under the nets. <laughs> but uh, this is where they live. So these fish now are actually out yeah, these are in these, the lake. Yeah, these fish li live outside the nets, yeah. Nothing holding them here. Look at that, look at that. You must have it going nice, in. Nice brownie. That's oh, a double, shit. that's a double, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Massive, isn't it? I think that's in the lake. Massive. That's nothing. Nothing to watch it. 91. Terry Bromwell. There's one fish I want to talk to you about now. <laughs> and this is what brought you some fame now, haven't you? You're a pin-ups pin -up guy, <laughs> yeah, you know, aren't you? I'm a tough pin-up boy. <laughs> Tell me what happened then. Tell me the story with that, with this big fish you had up in the Don, isn't it? Yeah, River Don in Scotland, in the International. Um, um, it was my first peg, C3, and uh, I was under a bridge and the weather was boiling and the river was really low. And all the ranunculus beds, you could see the weed all through the river. It's a river. big river? Yes, yeah, massive. It, it, it's nothing like here. Oh, no. This is, this is a brook compared to the Don. It's, it's wide and, it's, and it looks like you can wade here, but you get up above your knees and they'll take you off your feet. And for us, the spiders are working well, so we were using them above the, the French leader. We used them on a the French leader by putting the spiders in the droppers. And in amongst the weed, we had like 20, 25 inches apart. From the, from the nymph to a spider and like shaking the tip through the weed beds and we were getting measures so again the spider to flicker because right, yeah. it was pearling here it was flashing and it seemed to, it seemed to get the fish and um, we, we've done that in practice we've done a little bit of it in practice we were catching fish so we stopped doing that and find something else you know, so if we fall back on and uh, that's what I set up I set a French leader up with a 3.5mm on the point and a size 14 black pearly spider. There's two flies. Yeah, two flies, yeah. And uh, I was fishing the inside seam first, and I caught two fish pretty quickly. And then I come from there then, because I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to overfish it just in the second session, because it was tough fishing, it wasn't easy. And um, I left it for a little bit, looked for another fish. It was, no it was nothing really going, so I come back. And where the, where the pool would drop in and you had about three foot of water in the end of the pool, there, were, there was like a washout and it was like really thick, thick ranunculus, just thick lines and there was like little channels and I seen this one channel and it just looked like it stopped. So I thought, oh, I'll chuck the, chuck the bugs in the end, just shake a tip. I chucked the bugs in, I turned the rod to the side, I was bringing it through just a little bit faster than the current and I was just shaking the tip. But I fished a French leader, I, was, I had a... 15 metre daiki, daiku leader. So I was pretty far away, so I weren't disturbing the fish in the weed. And it stopped, but I felt it through the rod. It thump. You know, sometimes you, you have a salmon and then you feel him on worms or whatever, you thump, thump. It just, it just thudded. And I struck, and as I struck and I draw the line, the line just come towards me slow, just come straight at me. And I took my controller was behind me, I went, oh no. And he, he was like, what's the matter? As I was saying, what's the matter? The line went slack in my hand and the fish was just above my head, just completely, wow. just water spray everywhere. And this 
trout was just flicking through the air. And I was like, and I, I mean, I got, that's a brownie. And I, I was expecting a sea trout because we were catching sea trout up and some of the boys hooked some big fish we never got to see and we thought they were big sea trout. And uh, But as it turned in the end, flicked and the water spray, and it was like slow motion in my head. <laughs> and I was like, this is a fish, this, this is insane. So I dropped the rod and then it just went crazy. And it just, the power. I could, what leader you had on? I, I had the Annex 3.5 fluorocarbon on. Yeah, it was nothing. I won the dropper as well. On the dropper, yeah. I, at that time, I, which one do you take? He took the dropper on oh. the spider. But I didn't know he took the dropper until I got a little bit closer. I was so like, you were the weed bed next to it. Yeah, the, oh, there was just thick, it was like a chalk stream, thick, thick, like beds and beds and beds of weed. And he like kind of tail flicked out again. I dropped the rod and then he went under the weed and I was like, I was like, I'm going to lose this fish. But I thought, right, okay, the best thing I can do is keep the nymphs away from the weed. I shoved the tip of the rod in the water. I had the handle like, like he was holding a dagger. And I pressed the rod, the tip right into the riverbed and I bent it down. And I put the line through my little finger and I thought, he's under the weed, he's safe. He thinks he's safe. Oh, I see, you wanted him under. Yeah, so I wanted to keep all the gear right on the riverbed because the weed is... Because it was like thick weed coming out. It was like rafts. So under there, it was clear. So in my head, right. quick, thinking quickly, I was like, get him clear of it all. So what I started doing, I, I, he started to slow up, he, and I thought, he thinks he's safe under there. He, was, he weren't too bothered. So I was inching in him at the, at the time. It felt like it was forever, but it was seconds. So I kept on just pulling the line inch by inch, inch by inch, until I got him out. And I kind of like took, and as soon as he see me, out he came, whoosh. Jump again. Jumped again. Jumped four times he did. And um, my controller was like, my, I was like, I, I can't do anything with it. The net is not good, that's it. I, no, I, uh, lucky I had my snowy net, my big net. And it oh. had got an extendable handle on it. It would have been a nightmare if I didn't have that. Lucky I like a big net because it's quickly. And... Uh, so I was like, kept on turning him, turning him, and then the one time I turned him and he come out from a weed, I seen him flare his gills. I went, this, is, this fish is knackered. This fish is, he's stumbling. I was like, I got, I got you. And, wow. and I was like pulling the line. I turned the rod. He come down the side of the weed on me. As he was turning, I seen him, his gills go again. I thought, I thought right, take him down into the shallow water. Into the, so he was on top of the little weed and amongst the stones. And I seen him flounder. And then I turned him, I brought him in, and I managed to, like, dive forward and scoop him. As soon as I scooped the fish, I looked in the net, and I just looked in, and I just looked up. I went, oh, <laughs> I went, oh, my God. I said, thank you. <laughs> I did. And wow. I, I picked it up, and I, it was, like, in my snowy net. It was coming out. It was up like this. There's a picture on Facebook of it, the fish. And my net now has got a bend in it. Oh, I'd keep it like that. Yeah, yeah that's what I've left it. It's all it's bent where I held it. Yeah, so I yeah. kept him in the water, brought him over, and the head controller was there, and he was like, he said, it's the biggest trout I've ever seen, he said. And the, the controller was like, how the hell did you get that? How do you land that fish? I said, I have no idea. And we took the pictures, and um, I was still in my session, and I was like, right. I start, I, I, we, had, we measured it. It was too big for the trough, so all my, all my, I got measurements on my, on my rod. So he put the, put the fish in the trough, and it was out, out about an inch and a half out of the trough. So he used the measurement of the rod, and the controller and another guy verified it, it yeah. verified it, the two of them, took photos, and he said it was 73.3 centimetres. Wow. And I was looking at it, I put him in the water, and I, I spent about five minutes with the fish, 
I was making sure he was all right. I was like, and then he was like, he, he, he took a little bit of time, but then I was just standing there and the, the head controller come down and he's like, yeah, he's all right. And, and we, we, he was right beside me and he, and he just started to kick. And I watched him go out to the pool around and he went down river and turned and sat in the pocket pocket. And then you just seen him go away. Wow. I took the fly off and I and I threw it into the river and I said thank you very much. You threw I took the fly off, I caught it on and I I sacrificed it to the fish gods. I said thank you very much. 69. Julie McGeever. The Archbishop of the uh, Drunken Gilly. Yeah. I mean the the whole thing was I really didn't I'd never been out fishing I'd never been on the lakes and I mean I was busy getting started with you know at the hotel and running a hotel um, and then one night he said to me after dinner he you know very quiet man over dinner and he said you know I think it'd be a very good idea Julie if uh, you came out on the lake to know what your guests are doing so Julie took off the next day and went into uh, well, I don't know, a renowned angling shop in, in Ballina and got fitted for new big PVC waders and I must have got a rod and all that as well. So off we went and um, he, always, he used to employ for the whole month while he, over the weeks he was there two particularly well-known ghillies and they were brothers. Yeah. But there was one thing that they were well-known for also, <laughs> they were seldom sober. <laughs> and, you know, it's something you don't ever happen now but it was, you know, 30 odd years ago, yeah. But I always think that whoever was in the best part of sobriety on the day went out with the good bishop on the day. So we went out anyway, and um, I'd say probably after the first or second cast, I had, the side came straight back and caught me in the, the knee, I also remember the knee of the wagers. And the gilly got spent his afternoon on his knees in front of me trying to take out the fly <laughs> out of my wagers. And I can actually still remember the fumes of the, you know, that stale alcohol space. Right. But the bishop is sitting up there on the bow of the boat with a curly pipe, and he used to wear a tweed cap, you know, the, the Irish tweed cap, so yeah. was on him. And But he always had the collar underneath his jacket, believe it or not, and he giggling away. Episode 12, Dennis Espista of Wildfish Wild Places. You know, in, in Alaska, we that's part of the deal. We fly into a remote area, get dropped off by the float plane. He says, he makes a loop over it in the air and says, you need to walk along here and drop off into this hole, and that's the river, and I'll pick you up in 10 hours. Okay. Wow. So it got bear spray on us, and, you know, I don't have a gun, but I should. And, yeah, we got charged. This It was like a, you know, like a teenager bear, male bear, uh, charging us. He got to about 10 feet, 12 feet, charging, coming at us, and I sprayed the bear spray. And what <laughs> happened was uh, I got Drew in the face and myself in the face. And, you know, I the missed bear the bear. Stopped. Yeah, I missed the bear. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty funny story hindsight. But, yeah, it's a fog if you've ever sprayed bear spray, which most people haven't. No. Uh, it's a fog. And I mean, I would, if I was going to make bear spray, it'd be like wasp spray. It would spray 20 or 30 feet out there in a stream, you know, like a <laughs> rocket. This shit, shit was a fog. I was like, what is this crap? You know, just this big fog came back in our faces and we were oh, spraying God. it. Oh, it was, was it a black yes, bear, painful. was it? No, it was a grizzly. Yeah. A grizzly. grizzly bears. Wow. Yeah. And 
I, it was scary at the time. Funny story, hindsight. You know, we were full of bear spray and coughing and dying. And we hit the bear with a couple rocks and we got a couple, you know, ended up getting like 20 yards to seven. 24, Stephen Gale. Do you remember? Because they had their own boat and there was a slipway and they had the <laughs> highest van. I think one of the boys then, he had the highest van with a with the boat trailer and he reversed into the slipway, stepped out, column then, was rowing the boat to put onto on the, the trailer. trailer to take the boat out. And when the boat got on the trailer, it was obviously more weight and there wasn't enough tension on the handbrake and the whole boat, the trailer, and half the van just sunk I into the... Not. And then everyone was flapping around. The van, the van, the, the, van, the fucking van. van. <laughs> and then you, everyone's just watching. And then I, I darted over to look for the handbrake, and I couldn't find it. And then I seen you just dive in through the window of the passenger. The handbrake was on the dash. Yeah. You, you had to pull the handbrake from yep. the dash. And we stopped it from going totally submerged. Totally submerged. It was still all right. It worked after. I know. That's that Toyota. Highest we were. I don't see. Bulletproof. And I had my XR4i then, and oh, I God, told no. I told the van out then. Luckily, I had a, a tow bar in it as well. Like biggest fright they ever had with that XR4i, <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't the one where, where you were racing back from uh, Blackdown or Chew or wherever we'd been. It was when your father was driving it from North Wales. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember? And we come under the bridge. <laughs> And we, I don't know, we both woke up because we were both sleeping. Your father was driving, and we went, Stop! Because he was heading straight for the roundabout. He must have been doing about 90 miles an hour. Was it? I don't remember that. You must remember it, Kerry. Oh, I think with, with shocks like that, you put it, put it in, in the back of your <laughs> 75, Gareth Gaza Dixon. So if you were to pick for Clouet on then, your top flies, your, your go to flies, what would it be? Or well, not necessarily Cluella game, with your competition scene, I guess it's, it's, I guess it's the same flies. Well, you see, you Rut, Rut, Rutland is a bit different. You're, you're using more of the fabs down there and the leggy Nemos and stuff like that, nymphs. Whereas here, it'd be more Cormorans, Diaws, Booby. Not very rarely use a Fabia. It's more a size 12 Booby for, me, for myself, isn't it? When it goes a bit harder. On the winds up, it's a full on size 10. But. Uh, you're still going down that tip line slow approach when the fish goes harder. You know, I still see it. So when fish goes harder, you don't necessarily well, change the flies, you change the speed. Yeah, or you go a little bit smaller, but I, you know, that's why the bung does so well, because it allows people to fish slow. The people yeah. that can't fish slow, they're watching that bung, and you know, they are fishing slow, aren't they? Yeah. It's... Uh, as regards your lines, I bet, between you and Russell, you probably got more lines than Glasgow Angling. <laughs> if you want to stick to the, your, your top three lines, which you had to have? Dive five sweep for pulling. That is the best line to find fish. Dive five sweep is one of the best pulling lines. You go to a new lake and they're on a pole, well, you can find them, can you? Because it's coming all the way through the layers. Um, summer fishing, when it goes hard, is a booby basher. It's got to be a booby basher because it's the fastest sinking line out there. And you know, you look at some of the leagues in the summer, you, know, you catch 30, 40 fish because you can get down to them. And it, people, it does my head in a bit. People go, oh, floating line, floating line. You know, is catching a fish in a floating line as skillful as catching a fish 30 foot deep? 
I think when, when the fish go deeper, it's, it's more skill, it's more thin. It's more physical them, as well. Yeah, and getting them flies into that right zone yeah. and painting that picture in your head that you're in that zone of fish. Yeah. Um, and obviously for nymphing and stuff like that, the 12-foot slow tip, that is the one I use 90% of the time for slow fishing, nymphs, fabs. A 12-foot slow tip? 12-foot slow tip, yeah. Yeah, and of course you've you got, you got to have your dries, haven't you? you know? Yeah. You've got to have your float up for the dries. It was quite an eye-opener, actually, when I was on the next last time I was in, to see them in, they're in the lake, yeah. more or less. Like, yeah. There's nothing to do. The amount of people you take down there and go, oh, look at these, and they could stay there all day watching them. Where can you see a 15, 16-pound fish just swimming around in the lake? Yeah, it's, and uh, in that condition. Yeah. When it comes to the time now, I ask the same question to everyone. <laughs> and I probably think I know what the answer's going to be. Where would you want to be to make your last cast? Well, there's only one place, isn't there? If we sat up here, up, here, up the fluid, with Dice seven and the booby. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was going to be some romance no, there. No, you know, there's been romance in the fluid, but not like that. <laughs> Many thanks, Gar. Oh, thank you. Next time when it's a bit warmer, we'll have another day. We'll have a day up together. Yeah, we'll have a day of fishing, yeah, but uh, we'll wait for the heaters to come on. And, uh... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Episode 23, Jamie Miller from Garnfrood Fly Fishery. The thousands of fishermen, the thousands of days of enjoyment the fishermen have got from yeah. that lake, you know. Yeah, it's something to be very proud of. Particularly, you know, seeing the the you know, the stress that was involved in digging that lake out, you know, it's a it's a very yeah. rich lake as well. I've I've been to hundreds of fisheries, and I don't, mm. I haven't fished anywhere where there's such prolific fly hatches and consistent. Even in the, in the coldest days, you could mm. get fish rise. That's that's down to the spring. I mean, it's a, it's a constant eleven degrees coming from the the ground. Um, it it has a significance on the on the on the, the growth of the fish as well. Uh, the stress levels of the fish, uh, you know, is very is very good. You know, they don't, uh, you know, they don't experience very warm water in the summer, um, and then again in the winter, um, you know, they they continue to feed. On various some fisheries that are, uh, you know, are, are, are extracting water from mountain streams, generally speaking, you know, two three months of the winter, the fish don't grow. The, the water temperature is too cold. Yeah. Um, the benefit we've got a gan fruit, although it would be nice to have more water, the water we do have is consistent temperature. Uh, and that does a significance on the on the on the on the um, insect life in the lake, the freshwater shrimp, uh, the nymphs, you know, and the larvae, and uh, you know, and um, and it does have a significance on the quality of the fish that we can rear as well at Canfrood. You know, I remember the early days when I when I came, mm. you had to row. There was a boat. <laughs> well, I don't think it was an oar actually. There was a boat and a rope, wasn't it? Going to the island no, to been, get to the island. It would have been, a, a, yeah, oars. I mean, how how we managed to, yeah, uh, that was... Uh, health and safety, no? We no, we wouldn't. Health and safety <laughs> wouldn't have that, no. no. Uh, but, uh, yes, absolutely. Before the bridge was built uh, across the lake, that was in 97, we put the bridge in. Yeah, I used to row across. It used to be quite hilarious on a windy day. You'd see him setting off and uh, you basically knew they weren't going to get to the island. They'd get over to the meadow, uh, but they wouldn't get to the island. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember. You had... Uh, chicken wire on the um, pontoons then but you've gone it's almost like Champions League now you've got Astro these um, AstroTurf haven't yeah, you yeah absolutely I had an epiphany one day at, um, AstroTurf why can't I use AstroTurf and uh, yeah I went down to B&Q and uh, yeah started buying shed loads of it it's a lot easier to do it online these days but uh, 
Yeah, uh, 2012, I think it was beginning of 2013 that I started sticking the AstroTurf down, and that's that's fantastic, you know. It's a lot easier for fishermen to needle down on the platforms while they're releasing fish. Uh, it's a lot kinder to the fishermen, and it's a lot kinder to your nets as well, and, yeah. and the fish as well, you know, if you've got a deeply hooked fish. Episode 67, Dominic Kerrigan. I was partnered with uh, John Somerville. I know you mentioned John in one of your other, yeah. one of the other podcasts. I was partnered with John, and Noel Warren was boating, and it was there was a nice a nice wind on the lake. It was a real nice wind, and it was blowing in the car. And we went down, and Noel Noel is a lovely wooden boat, um, a, a clinker boat, and it does drift. It does drift like a dream. There's nice. no doubt about it. It, it, it drifts like boats. a dream. Yeah. So we went in, and we were, we were fishing, fishing off. Not not deep deep water, but fishing off marginally deep water into shallows, and um, came into a, a, a small inlet at Cahir Bay, and I put the fly in. I was pulling away and chatting, and the next thing just came up on the hang, and oh, this lad just came out of the water, and the lovely head and tail over the bob fly. <laughs> I just tuck it and let him down, and let him down. And like the, the thing about that water was that clear; you could see the fish going down and down at the fly, and just lifted into him and uh, the, the fight took off and I was playing away at him and um, of course then John was fishing the other side of the boat, he was fishing away and fishing away and my fish was steaming out the front of the boat here and John was pulling away and the next thing I just looked with the corner of my eye and of course there was obviously two fish laying in there the comrade came up and went for John's fly over, big head and tail over it and missed it so that, that that was the two fish were sitting in there. It must have been a pair of fish wow. that, were, that were hanging about in there. So John fished for a little bit, didn't get it. So fair play, he quit fishing when he seen that I was in a pretty good fish. He quit fishing, Noel got on the oars. and But between the three of us, we got all done and got him directed around the rocks and into the net. And then that was, I, I won the heat that day. Um, I, I can't even remember what the prize was for winning the heat. So then, of course, that carries on then for the heaviest fish for the whole of the competition. That was maybe the Wednesday was my qualifying day. The Saturday then, it blew up, blew blew really, really hard. So the, the qualifying days then were cancelled. Or maybe it was the final was cancelled and it had to be rescheduled. So you were sort of checking every day and the sweat was on because you were the, you were the heaviest fish and you were phoning, was there anything big got today? You know, was there anything yeah. big got today? But yeah, I came out of that in the end. So I end up, I think I had crystal trophy and a thousand euros plus whatever the the winning of the heat got me. Thousand I can't, euros, I can't remember yeah. that. Yeah, so it was, look, the, the thing is, it leaves you, you can fish competition free for a bit then. So you can, you know, you're yeah, yeah. you're not paying anything. You're It's, it's profited at that stage, which is good. Will your wife be listening to this podcast? Because then you tell her it's £250 you are. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what I told her. I said, ah, that's that two hundred and fifty pounds, so she should be out it in diesel." <laughs> Episode thirty-two, professional fly tire, Jimmy Terrell. Well, I enjoyed our chat, me. but it's come to that time. I'm going to ask you a question, which yep. I ask everyone, and you probably know what the question is going to be. Where would you want to be to make your last cast? On the River Gowell. It's just, it's paradise. And if you're ever 
over here, I'll take it and you'll see why it's just, it's a small river and it's, if you were out there on a summer's evening, you were in a different world because there's virtually nothing, only a farmhouse here or there every few miles and it's paradise. Just you, the river, and hopefully a hatch of flies on it. And there's nothing better. I've had some of my nicest, nicest evenings on it. You could actually sit there for hours on a summer's evening, just looking at fish rising. There's, there's nothing nicer, actually. Just somewhere, there's, there's actually, I'll, I'll, if you're ever over, I'll take and show you. There's, there's even, a, uh, there's a weir in a certain part of it. There's no houses near this. There's a weir and there's a graveyard. And I, I often said to myself, it would be lucky to be buried there. The graveyard is probably 200 yards off the river, in the middle of nowhere. A house at the graveyard. It's just a paradise, honestly, paradise. And I love it. It's probably the nicest place to, that I've ever had to fish in my life. Like, the fishing is so good in it, and nobody fishes it. You kind of have it all for yourself. But you wouldn't see a footprint. To me, that's, that's nice. And over the years, I've learned different lane ways to go down through food meat and farmers who don't even fish. And if you catch it, if the fishing is good, take a fish home and drop it off on the doorstep on the way home. And you're always welcome back. Little laneways where there's, you know, you've no access, only only those laneways. And you learn that they're there over the years. Nobody else would know that. And sometimes you can drive in and park right on the edge of the river. They're just laneways the farmer access access lanes for fields farmers that's how i learned all that river you'd nearly have it to yourself but again if the fishing is good catch keep a fish drop it on his doorstep on the way home and you'll always be welcome back you'd be welcome if you didn't drop it anyway but yeah the, you know that to me is it's home from home mm-hmm. nothing nicer well i hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as i did making it to celebrate this 100th episode I have some great prizes for my patrons from people who have supported the podcast from the start and has kindly donated these prizes I'd like to thank Charles Jardine Simon Kidd of Snowby Alan Reese, Stephen Belcher from the Gilly Kettle Company Russell Owen and Gareth Dixon from Cloedog and Jamie Miller from Garnfruit Fly Fishery I will be adding the description to all the prizes in the notes to accompany this podcast. So if you're not yet a Patreon and want to enter with a chance of winning a prize, sign up by clicking patreon.com forward slash castingwithkerryjones or visit my website castingwithkerryjones.com and tight lines for the rest of the season and don't strike too soon. <laughs>